Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you're well wherever you're listening. This is the show where we speak with all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. If you enjoy the show, you can now become a supporter. The whole thing takes about a minute. If you're interested, go to glow.fm slash E2. That's glow.fm slash E2 for more. This one is sponsored by Bruce. If you're working from home and have canceled your in-person stuff lately as a result of the pandemic, you might have dodged your dentist appointment. Thankfully, Bruce is taking care of your oral hygiene through state-of-the-art electric toothbrush technology shipped direct to you. It was developed in collaboration with dentists to ensure an amazing clean via ultra-soft bristles, six cleaning modes, and sonic wave technology. It also makes an amazing holiday gift. And with Christmas just around the corner, you might be thinking about this for you or maybe for a loved one. Either way, don't forget to go to Bruce.com. That's B-R-U-U-S-H. That's two U's. Dot com and use the code E215. That's E215 for 15% off. If you're an entrepreneur, you've probably heard of the business model canvas, which is maybe one of the most influential templates for developing new or existing business models. The canvas was created back in 2008, but planted the seeds or Strategizer, an incredible company co-founded by today's guest, Alan Smith. Strategizer is a content beast with best-selling books, technology platforms and apps, online training, workshops, and of course, the business model canvas itself, which has been used by millions around the globe. In today's episode, which is round two with Alan, we get into a lot of the topics from The Invincible Company, one of Strategizer's latest books, including how businesses can innovate right now in this crazy commerce mode we're all in, the idea of investing in a portfolio of ideas, the real stats stemming from early stage venture capital investments into startups, and you might be surprised by these, how entrepreneurs and CEOs can gain a competitive advantage beyond products, services, price, and tech, and so much more. And with that intro out of the way, let's get right to the show. Here is round two with Alan Smith. You know, it's funny last time you were on we got so into the weeds on the business model design stuff mm. and one of the big topics that we explored that first time around was where startups typically fail and i'm curious to know like this has been a big year for everybody this has been a very challenging year for businesses in general so have you seen some new patterns of mistakes surface this past year in the midst of the pandemic 
So I'll start with larger companies is a renewed interest in innovation, right? And in coming up with new ideas because they realized, oh, yeah, the old way isn't going to be here forever. You know, disruption comes in 2020 and it comes, you know, in, in subsequent years as well. So what's next, right? What is, what, how do we develop new ideas? And whether it's for a startup or for a big company, you know, it's the same thing. But the main thing that we've really seen is just a renewed interest in innovation and trying to get more systematic about it in general. I noticed this year with smaller businesses, they didn't have time to be as diligent as they wanted and sometimes just had to respond immediately, right? So there were a lot of knee-jerk reactions and a lot of, okay, well, we're going to have to take on more risk in a business decision than maybe we would in another year, but we're going to have to just do it quick because we're we're at zero revenue right now. And that I completely respect. You know, in, in many cases, people are using our tools, you know, less this year because they just had zero time um, to do a proper de-risking process, which in normal years saves a lot of money. What we did see in uh, smaller business and in entrepreneurship is a renewed focus on what really matters to people. And so rather than, you know, people getting visions in their head and having lots of time and comfort to kind of explore that and, and, you know, fall in love with their own idea. This year, I noticed just personally a trend where businesses were responding to people's needs really, really rapidly. Mm -hmm. And that, that focus on the customer, maybe you've seen the same thing, but that focus on the customer was really bright for everyone. And this, you know, speaks to the shift in the customers as well, right? Maybe people are probably seeing this in their customers. Their customers are willing to do things that they wouldn't have been willing to do in the past. Not only have businesses had to change, the way we, you know, buy has changed. Do you think there's an aspect of strategizers value prop that has been diminished? Do you feel like the experience is the same for your clients? Have you had to adjust in unique ways? It's absolutely not the same. So I, I can say for certain it's not the same. At Strategizer, we do company offsites, right? And every year we grab everyone from around the world who works from Strategizer and we go to one beautiful location and we spend, you know, four or five days together, you know, working on problems and using a lot of our own tools. We would love to do it more often. That's all we can afford. You know, uh, but we, we get everybody in place at one point in time. And that's one of our favorite things to do because in person there's a certain energy and you know we're also seeing people who we don't see every day which contributes to that and we did our virtual offsite and everybody who had been to one before said this is totally different but it's also totally great so there is an element of our value proposition that is not there i think the energy and real connection and trust that you can get in an in person experience is different than what we're, we've been able to achieve anyway online so far to date. I believe that that's sort of the biggest gap. Let's get into the book a little bit. So The Invincible Company, most of the thinking around this obviously happened before COVID, but you know we're seeing a lot of key themes that I think are very relevant right now and people would be very interested to learn about. So one of them is that business models are expiring faster than ever before. And as you mentioned, it's increasingly difficult to compete on on new products, new services, uh, to compete on price. If this isn't the list that CEOs or founders should be thinking about in terms of gaining that competitive edge, what should founders be thinking about? How should they compete? Great question. So 
when we when we started this book, there's the publisher asked us. They said, "Hey, can you can you guys come up with a list of the world's hundreds best business models, and then people could just sort of take those off the shelf and make them work, right?" For them, and that could be because we've been preaching this idea for a while that you know business models that can be a competitive advantage beyond just the product. Like you know, great companies compete on their business model, and the great product is baked into that because lots of people have great products. Um, but when it's embedded in a great business model, it becomes much more powerful. So that's number one. Now that's not particularly useful, right? Because the product is part of the business model; it's it's right there in the middle. What we were asked to do was something that just wasn't fair, right? To say that these are the best business models of all time, because that's not real, right? Like you can't say like, well, these are the best like hundred songs of all time. Like it's not the case. It depends what you want to do, right? Like, do you want to dance or do you want to relax or do you want to sit down and think about working? So thinking about it from that perspective, if you were to look at, you know, anything that was great in an area and ask, why did that become so great? What was it that was interesting about that? We were like, well, we would like to do that. We'd like to create more of a playbook than a list, right? Where we're, we sort of abstract the core ways that you could differentiate on a business model and innovate and, and create you know, a new competitive advantage. And, and this is something that's where it's essentially a, a good way to describe it, Adam, is like a fast lane. There's very few people in that lane and you can go a lot faster. This is a sort of a secret competitive advantage that very few people know about. So to answer that question uh, about, well, how can we do that? You know, what are the sort of like big themes? We came up with this thing called the pattern library. And the pattern library focuses on uh, sharing those different types of disruption and where you can create a disruptive business model. I'll start by sharing the sort of like big three areas and then share a couple of other ones, you know, uh, in between. So for example, you could focus on the front stage, right? These are the things that people kind of see. So it could be, you know, being a market explorer uh, is what we called it. So really, you know, doing something interesting in the market. The second could be focusing on the channel, right? Doing something different within the channel and using that as your point of innovation. And the third is something we called uh, the, the gravity creators, where there's a component of your value proposition that just attracts more um, once you've sold a little. And there's there's lots of great examples of this. The second big area, obviously, if we've got front stage, we've got backstage, right? People could have guessed that. You know, there's a focus on resource. And so building up resources as the focus for innovation, doing things differently, right? An activity differentiator is what we called it. Um, so just doing things in a different way that produces a different result. And then lastly was scalers, um, which was figuring out how to scale in a completely different way. Simple example of that is franchisers. You know, the, the very first franchise was an incredible business model that or component of the business model that had never been done before that allowed for a ton of scale. Right. So that can also be a point of, you know, what does a franchise look like in your area? But also, how do we do this differently? And so we sort of sketch out the broad strokes and then allow people to figure it out for themselves. The last piece was really the profit formula disruption. So, you know, if we've got the front stage and we've got the backstage. And you imagine the front stage is kind of where you make money and the backstage is where you spend money, you know, you, you, the sort of infrastructure. Um, there's a profit formula uh, between those two. And so do you differentiate in revenue? Do you differentiate in cost? Or do you find a way to differentiate in the middle, you know, on the margin? 
And we share interesting examples of each one of those. And you list some case studies I thought were interesting, one of which was Tesla, who in 2012 envisioned a large untapped market. The Model S they created was the right value proposition to unlock that opportunity. Is this an example of front stage, would you say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is, this is you know, they were, they were a visionary, uh, what we called it, uh, within the you know, sort of market explorer component within the sort of uh, <laughs> front stage component. So it's sort of like we broke it down almost into three layers. We found these different types, one type of innovation within one larger theme uh, of business model innovation. Mm-hmm. What about examples of channel innovation? So when you talk about channels, are you referring specifically to customer acquisition channels? You've got a customer segment, right? And you've got a value proposition. And the question you're asking yourself is, well, how could we increase our market access and build really strong direct channels to our end customers, right? And to ask yourself, if you are a channel innovator, you'd say, well, we have large scale and ideally direct access to our customer. No, we don't have much. Or yes, we've got a ton. And we have these little scales and and things that people can use to identify, you know, am I doing strongly in this area? Or am I doing weakly in this area? Is this is this sort of a layer or an ingredient that I can add to my business model? Or is this something that's not useful for me? And there's a few different ways to look at it. You know, we looked at the idea of, you know, Dollar Shave Club and Nespresso, who, you know, ends up going dis- direct to consumer. And we called it a disintermediator. What I think is interesting is, as people read them and as you sort of immerse yourself in it, we've already done the work of abstracting the core idea and giving you the questions you need to ask yourself to lead to insight. So it's a very quick path. Like as soon as you pick it up, you know, what I've heard from people is when they look at this, they can immediately start developing ideas for their business. Of mm-hmm. Oh, this is how we could do this differently. And I never thought that that would even be a thing that could be helpful. And when they look at the outcome of doing that differently, it's potentially game-changing, right? What's powerful about this work, and I'll just say this one thing that I think people sometimes miss, is that when you're working on these fundamental elements, they are extremely high leverage, right? Like if you make a change here, it's like, you know, if you're trying to walk from New York to LA and you, you know, change your degree heading by one degree yeah, at the beginning, like you might end up in Washington, right? Like you're going to end up someplace completely different. These are those sort of small degree changes that end up with huge impact on, you know, the the potential of of a business. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier the idea of de-risking, and how that's somewhat been challenged um, given where we are this year. But you know, organizations are cash strapped, right? Everybody is trying to cut expenses. Uh, and or start businesses on the cheap. So how do you suggest that people de-risk? Like what are some best practices now that we're at the stage that we're in in 2020? Oh, good question. So there's essentially three areas of risk in any business. And and maybe we talked about this a little bit last time as well, but these three main areas are the sort of market risk, um, which is desirability, right? Like, do they want it? Do customers want this? Do they want it in this way, right? Is this the right customer, et cetera? So all of the questions around the front stage. The second stage is the feasibility risk, which is, can we do this? Is this something we could actually build? And then thirdly, the viability risk. So if we can do it and we sh- and uh, people do want it, well, should we bother? Right. Is there enough money in this to make it a worthwhile business of you know organizing a bunch of people's time and labor 
around you know finding an opportunity and growing it. The sort of general path that we suggest people do is you know taking whatever their idea is and you know mapping it out, getting it explicit so everyone knows on the team, hey, this is where we're thinking of going. And then the second is asking the question of everyone you know who's available as a stakeholder. Um, if you're an entrepreneur, you know maybe it's your executive team um, or your board or you know just a couple of uh, you know people from mastermind group that you you know appreciate. Looking at the idea and asking the question, what would need to be true for this idea to succeed? What you'd be shocked to find, and what most people realize after the very first time they've done this, is how many assumptions they were making that they had zero evidence of. As entrepreneurs, we tend to fall in love with our ideas and are very good at convincing other people about those ideas. And that's pretty much the best and worst double-edged sword. <laughs> that yeah, there as, is. You, as you pointed out in episode one, I mean, that's where most startups fail. Where does 3B fit into this? So the notion of adaptability. Uh, so adaptability is kind of that, you know, secret sauce. There's another component, which is, okay, well, how adaptable is the organization, right? To, you know, things within the environment and how quickly can the organization change? You know, I think sometimes in COVID times, for example, everyone found adaptability that they maybe didn't think that they had, you know, had to make those changes really, really quickly. But we see adaptability as the way an organization can make changes to responses in the environment. So the business model, you remember, is just sort of that's what you can control. The environment, you can't control. Like this is completely out of your hands. How adaptable you are, that's a set of muscles. And that set of muscles is based on basically process, right? It, it's skills and process within the organization. And how good is the organization at talking about ideas internally, but breaking them down into their component parts, about testing you know, ideas quickly, um, about speaking a shared language with each other, and being open to new ideas. You know, uh, one of the biggest problems, especially in, in more established companies or entrepreneurs who have had some success, is believing that they've got to figure it figured out. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, it's a nice natural segue into another theme in the book, uh, this idea of creating an ambidextrous organization. I mean, I have never heard a company being described in those terms, <laughs> but it fe it feels like this is a very apropos way of characterizing what's going on right now and how to make an organization robust and adaptable and durable into the future. So give me some examples of world-class companies or even, you know, perhaps small to medium-sized companies that have done this successfully. Who have you seen rethink, recreate, innovate during the last six months in a unique way? I'll speak to a company that we work with 
and it's a company named Bosch, and they are they're really incredible. They have basically they have an open call for ideas of you know what might we do next? Where's our next big group of ideas going to come from? And this is very common in innovation, right? And the whole idea management platform, uh, you know that where companies are trying to figure out, okay, well, where's things coming from? They figured, oh, we just need lots of ideas, right? Then they learned that ideas aren't the problem. There's lots of ideas. The, the big mindset change that larger companies need to make, and Bosch is one of them, this is why I'm bringing them up, is that they can't pick the winners. And if you're an entrepreneur, you know this, you've had ideas that fail. And if you've tried to get money you know, for your idea, you know that uh, your investors can't pick the winners either. They're investing in you, but they don't know for sure if you're going to succeed, there's a chance they're going to lose their money. That was something that larger companies really didn't get before. They thought that if we put money into an idea, it's going to grow to be a success and we can pick the winners. So first was, okay, we've got a lot of ideas. Second, getting through the, the feeling that, okay, we'll just pick the one or two best ideas from that pile. And instead investing in a portfolio of ideas and saying, okay, well, just like venture capital would say, okay, well, these, this group of you know, 150 ideas, Bosch would say, okay, we'll take 72 of those and we'll give them each, uh, let's say 30 grand and uh, 20% of you know, three or four people's time uh, for the next three months and see where they can go with this and to produce some evidence that this idea is going to work, break it down into its component assumptions, uh, evolve it, you know, as they find out what's true or false you know, about it and present at the end of that and say, hey, we're ready to go a little bit further. We've discovered an opportunity here. The same model without investing in so many ideas is the same one that any entrepreneur can use in terms of looking for different opportunities, not being afraid to make a jump. You know, if a new product idea isn't working out and saying, you know what, we invested this much, we can't pick winners, we don't think this is going to work, let's not try to fit a square peg into a round hole. Yeah, this idea, this notion of por a portfolio management approach to idea validation, let's say, this was very insightful. Just looking at established brands, like you pointed out that if, if you know, established brand X or, or mature company Y invests into 250 new projects at $100,000 each. The numbers suggest that 162 of those ideas will fail. 87 will find, quote, some success. And only one will become a new growth engine. And that's for an established company. But, you know, this idea that you can't pick a winner, I mean, this, this runs the whole gamut from small startup all the way up to Fortune 500. Yes, exactly. And the only difference is that in a Fortune 500, they have the money to invest in a lot of different ideas. And, mm. you know, they have the mandate of producing, you know, basically billion dollar businesses to replace existing billion dollar businesses that won't be there forever due to disruption that we've covered. In smaller companies, you know, you obviously don't have the resources to make that many bets, but having that success criteria for yourself, especially, you know, for absolute like beginner startups, um, right up to SMEs that are starting to invest in new ideas is when are you willing to say, okay, we've invested enough and we're going to cut this off. And every company needs to define their own criteria for that. The fundamental insight is that you can't pick the winner. So don't assume that you have it to begin with and you can just keep sort of, you know, finessing it, you know, to get there, that there is a point in time where you need to make a jump um, if it's not working out.
Yeah. And I mean, you also share some of the stats around early stage venture capital investments, right? In startups. And, you know, listeners might be surprised by these numbers too. I mean, we, we hear about VC successes all the time on the front page of TechCrunch or wherever people are getting their startup info from. But it, it's sort of the same theme, like so six out of 10 investments, uh, VC investments lose money. Three out of 10 show some performance and four out of a thousand or 0.4% are actual outliers and show large performance or extreme success. Kind of, kind of scary, huh? It's sort of surprising because we get fed so much noise in the media about, you know, VC successes, you know, nobody understands what the actual numbers are. And unless you're Sequoia, and I don't even know what the Sequoia numbers are or an equivalent of a Sequoia, you're probably seeing this kind of performance in your fund. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's that's where a lot of those numbers you know, come from. And whether it's that stat or some other ones that we use, you know, they come from um, general reporting across VCs. And you know, whether you're the best or the worst, you know, there's obviously a range there, but you know, if we're talking about, you know, all of the ideas pool out there performing at similar rates. So I think the the reason why we we don't see it this way is survivor bias. Mm-hmm. You know, who's going to write a blog post about, oh, yeah, we had um, basically we only had one success over the, that paid for all of the returns of our investors over the last five years. That's not something investors really want to hear. No entrepreneur wants to to believe that. But these are the statistics yep. uh, of this is. It, there's death, taxes, and statistics, or maybe it's lies, damn lies, and statistics. It depends on you know, which one you, you buy into. But yeah, absolutely. So what we try to do about this is not to see this in a negative way. And we don't share these stats to scare people. What we share these stats for is to make it more clear and more acceptable to let go of an idea that's not working. Mm-hmm. And for larger companies to invest in multiple ideas to find one that will work. And for the, the teams, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, in if, if let's say you're an SME entrepreneur and you're running like a $10 million business or $20 million business and you're figuring out, yeah, what's the next thing? We're thinking about launching a new product. The team that in, like works on that product, are you going to fire them all if it doesn't work out? No, you don't need to because there's a good chance it's not going to. If they follow an efficient process that makes the best use of the limited capital you have to figure out where a particular idea sits and how much it can change, you're making the best use of your money. And that's what we're trying to help people with. I think it makes a ton of sense. Rewinding back to something you said earlier about this renewed focus on the customer. You know, when you look at best examples of invincible companies and who they're creating value for, you know, customers is obvious and maybe they have this renewed focus on customers, but what else have you seen? I mean, who else are they trying to create value for? Is there value to be created beyond the customer? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I'm really glad you asked this question. And this is one of the things that why we believe it's worth trying to become an invincible company. And, you know, again, we see three tenants there, which is that you got to constantly reinvent yourself being able to compete on a serious, uh, superior business model and transcending industry boundaries. You know, those are three of the sort of big pillars, not worrying about industry so much. And that each one of those companies is creating more value for different groups other than customers. So if you're a team working in this environment where, you know, failure is acceptable, 
where there's processes that you're able to follow to figure out if an idea is right, you're going to feel better working there, working with, you know, a really fun, clear, simple, visual way to work um, on these things that management understands that there's a culture that supports this, you know, really allows employees to thrive, right? And to bring them best, their best selves to work every day and to not feel like their, you know, time there is completely wasted, that every minute that they're spending is working on something value, valuable at that moment, even if it's on one of the ideas that's not necessarily going to succeed in building for the future, or if it's focused on exploiting existing ideas, you know, knowing the place that they, they hold within that organization and the culture that's appropriate for that. We talked about customers already, um, but then there's owners, right? And, you know, owners, uh, anybody who's invested in an in invincible company is going to benefit from that long-term growth. They're not going to be a sort of like one and done flash in the pan company. They know that this company is going to be finding what's next at every moment in time. And they're going to be more aware of the disruption risk. You know, this, this company is going to attract better talent, like we talked about, you know, and that's great, you know, for the owners and shareholders of it. And their ability to sort of do both of these things both reduces risk of disruption and obsolescence, right? Like this is really, really powerful. Then the last group is, well, if it's good for, if it's good for customers and it's good for the team and it's good for owners, we believe there's a good chance it's going to be good for society that they're providing economic growth, that they're hopefully, you know, creating game-changing innovations, that if they're responding to the environment appropriately, and when I talk about that, I mean the business environment and societal uh, facts uh, or societal components, they're going to put that into their innovation projects. And, you know, in a time when, you know, climate change is so important and human rights are so important and, a company that's not just on a single track saying, this is our idea, we're going to try to like exploit this and just make money for ourselves. A company that is responding to the environment naturally is going to create more value for that environment. And we just say that's society in general. What about creating value that transcends generations? So do you see companies thinking that far ahead? In other words, do you think some of these outliers will be thinking about how to create a perennial company? That's really the idea of the invincible company, right? Of that companies don't need to accept death and disruption anymore. Mm -hmm. That there's a toolkit for, you know, sort of extending their life potentially indefinitely. Is this a bit of a shift from your thinking previously with business model generation? Like you've talked about this idea of a natural life cycle in business, uh, just mm -hmm. like anything else that nothing lasts forever. Businesses don't last forever. Do you feel like things are changing in such a way that you're perhaps rethinking that notion, that idea? I think we built on it and we knew that business models don't last forever. And there is a natural life cycle to a business model. It cannot stay static, right? Like no organism, organism can stay static in a dynamic environment. What we notice is that, well, sometimes, you know, business models are able to change and sometimes they aren't. So if something's in that sort of like exploit area, there comes a point where, you know, it's, it's just, it reaches the end of its life cycle. This idea of the portfolio allows the company to sort of go beyond that one business line that is completely dependent on, which is potentially destined for death at one point in time, or at least, you know, sort of like it's, it's going to taper out. 
where the portfolio helps out is, you know, having a few of those ideas that are in the sort of exploit portfolio. But now it's not just the company isn't built around that business model. They're built around a higher level kind of like strategic North Star and their, you know, corporate identity of what are they there for? What are they there to do? And what are the different business models they can invest in to develop? And also the ones that they've created to date that support that strategic direction, because there can be more than one answer to that question. And, you know, we share examples of companies like Unilever, who has you know a very specific strategic direction in terms of things that they care about. And the business models will come and go. They'll develop new ones if they have a robust you know, space for doing that. And they'll be able to retire the old ones if they have a willingness to let go of the past and to move towards the future. Mm-hmm. Speaking of moving toward the future, in the last few minutes, let's make some uh, predictions. <laughs> let's have some fun. Where is most of the innovation going to happen? Front stage, channel, resources, activity, Ugh. et cetera. Where do you think this is going to over-index? I can say that individual entrepreneurs, everyone has their sweet spot. You know, their thing that they tend to be good at. You know, they, they might have ideas that just naturally fit um, into one space. And they may have ideas for many businesses that all have a general theme of something that's kind of worked for them and something that they really understand around, you know, finding a new channel, like we talked about earlier, and really being just great at that. And I think those people are, are going to be and have been forced to innovate more in times of extreme change. And so we're just going to see more. I think the only thing I can say is every one of these areas, we're going to see more because of the amount of basically like forest fire or deadwood that's been cleared out throughout this, you know, pandemic. Strategizer.com for more on what you guys do. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-Y-Z or Z if you're in Canada, E-R.com. That's right. Um, to get more info on The Invincible Company or to get your copy. And of course, get more info on the business model canvas, which in my opinion is one of the most influential templates for developing and getting clarity on your business model. Alan, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for doing this, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Until next time. Until next time. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.
Electricast.